Good morning, everyone. Father, we come with grateful hearts for all that you have done in our lives and what you continue to do. It is remarkable to see the gospel going forth in so many ways in this community. It does our heart good to know that when you understand, when one understands the concept of the Lordship of Christ and you say the yes of his rule and reign and then you see the horrible no of our world that there's a compelling call to do something. And so we thank you for the opportunity that was ours this weekend to really do some gospel good in our community. And now, Lord, as we talk about the subject of giving today and how out of the overflow of your grace, you ask us, invite us to enter into um, the economy of your gracious gratitude and giving, we pray that you'd motivate us to think about giving in fresh and new ways today. And uh, so help us to hear and to respond to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the city of Houston, Texas, is named after Sam Houston, who was a famous soldier, senator, and governor of the state of Texas. General Houston was a rough and angry man, and at the latter part of his life experienced a glorious change as he came to faith in Jesus. He was led to Christ by the great-grandfather of President Lyndon Johnson. At his baptism, um, immediately coming out of the waters, Sam Houston pledged that he would pay half of the local pastor's salary. And when a bystander asked him why he would make such a generous offer, he replied, My checkbook was baptized too. I think that that perspective of my checkbook being baptized too is something that's really important because it reflects the natural link between our values and what we spend our money on. Jesus famously said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what he said should be fairly obvious to us, and that is that the heart and money go together. In other words, money follows the heart, and the heart follows money. If you were to come over to my house, you could see what I value based upon what I spend money on. I could come to your house and see what you value. Show me your checkbook, show you mine, and you could see what we really value, because finances show us what our real affections are all about. And so this connection between money and the heart is why it's so important to talk about the subject of money. Now in two weeks from today, we'll launch into a 10-week series on the Psalms, but before we get into that season of uh, teaching around that great book, I wanted to take two weeks to talk about the subject of money and giving and stewardship. And the reason is, is that the last time we talked about this was February 2010. We were getting ready to build our new sanctuary. And at the end of that capital campaign, our elders wisely suggested that it would be good for us to come back to this subject of money and stewardship and giving on a more regular basis. Especially during a particular season where we weren't asking you to fund a budget or a building. In other words, the, the best time to talk and to teach on the subject about giving is when you're not asking folks for money. So I just, I just need you to know uh, from the 
from the depth of my heart, the reason that we're talking about this today is not because things are difficult financially here at the church. We're not behind on our budget. We're not lagging contributions to our new facility. On the contrary, things are going exceptionally well. Let me give you a few data points to prove that. First, we have 10% more families that are giving now than we're giving last year. New families that have joined us, others who have started to give. We're 15% ahead of income where we were this time last year. As well, in January, we presented to you a stretch budget, knowing that we've had some, some big expenses coming up connected with the new building. And I'm pleased to tell you, we're right on target. In fact, even a little bit ahead in hitting that budget target. And even more remarkable to date is that we have had $9.8 million given to that new facility fund, along with $200,000 given by people who weren't with us when we first began this project. So you look at all those things combined, I'm just telling you, things are going exceptionally well. So I don't have a motivation to talk about this because there's something we need from you. Rather, the reason that I'm talking about this today is because there's something I want for you. I want you to experience the joy of what it means to not do the curl on your possessions, to curl your fingers, to hold on. I want you to see the beauty of what it means to give and to be a part of God's economy of generosity. Now, there are a lot of things that I love to talk about from God's Word. And let me be candid. This is not one of them. If there's a lot of things I love to preach on, money and giving is not one. And the reason is, is that it's always a loaded subject. It opens me up to all kinds of criticism. And so if you're here today and you think my agenda is to get you to give to College Park Church, here's what I would say to you. Keep your money. I don't want it. We don't want it. My motive today is not to fill the coffers of the church. It is rather to expand the beauty of what could happen in your heart if you see the way in which God can work through the money that he's entrusted to you. So the question then is, why would we spend two weeks talking about the subject of money? Let me give you a couple reasons why as we begin. The first is this, is that the Bible, frankly, talks a lot about money. The simple fact is that the Bible, particularly Jesus, has a lot to say about money stewardship and possessions. In fact, did you know that Jesus actually talked more about stewardship than he did heaven and hell combined? That amounts to about one out of every ten verses in the Gospels. Additionally, if you take the 38 parables that Jesus gave, a total of about 16 of them talk in some way about what it means to have, possess, or to give earthly treasure. As well, when you take the whole Bible, the whole Bible, for Old Testament and New, there are over 2,000 references to wealth and prosperity, which is twice as many references to subjects like faith and prayer. And so with this kind of emphasis, clearly in the Bible and in the ministry of Jesus, we, we dare not ignore it. So the, the Bible talks a lot about money. Here's the second reason, and that is that we don't like to talk about money. So there's a, there's a pastoral duty here. And that pastoral duty sounds like this, that the elders have an obligation to talk about things that we don't want to talk about. And the reason is, is that because usually the things that we don't want to talk about are the things that we need to talk about. The, the Bible warns us that in the last days, there will be an element of teaching where teachers will say things that tickle our ears, that will suit our passions, according to 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. And so therefore, there should be some sermon, some teaching that on a fairly regular basis makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. So if you come to College Park for six, seven, eight weeks and you just feel comfortable all the time, something's wrong. Either I'm not doing my job or you're not listening, but something's broken. The reality is you should leave every once, about every six weeks or so just feeling like, you know what, I've got some work to do. I've got some things that I really need to address. I feel a little bit uncomfortable. 
Third, our approach to money fundamentally is a spiritual issue. So money, wealth, possessions, material things, they're not bad things. They're, they're good gifts from God. But what happens is that money is a conduit for the soul. It's a conduit for the heart. For instance, think of the last time that you received some extra money. Maybe a small gift, maybe a large gift, maybe a bonus, some inheritance. You, you had some money. Think of what went through your head when you received that money. What was the focus of your heart? What was it that you thought you could do with that money? You see, money reveals what goes on inside the heart. And your approach to money and what you do with money will really tell you what you are passionate about. It will tell you what you love, where your priorities are. And so how we handle our money tells us a lot about the soul. In fact, it probably tells us more than we would rather admit. Which is why Paul said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 regarding his personal responsibility as a pastor he says as for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on god who richly provides us with everything to enjoy and then finally giving friends makes faith real so the ultimate goal that I have for you is the same goal I have for myself, and that is for us to see the beauty, the excitement, and the joy of what happens when you live and give generously. And frankly, we need to be reminded of this often, because the gravitational pull of our culture is to feed and consume for us. Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive, but our culture doesn't operate that way. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8, there is a ability when you give to see that God is really able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things you may abound in every good work what happens when you give is that you're in a place of seeing God at work for you and through you it's you're able to be as Paul says to be enriched in every way for your generosity you'll be able to see God work in ways that you won't see if you don't give it puts God really to the test it's one of the few things that he says test me in this if I will open up the storehouses of heaven and bless you. It shows that your faith is real and it is an opportunity for you to really see God at work. So at the end of the day, the reason that I'm talking to you about this subject is because I want you to experience the beauty of knowing that God is on the move and that he's doing things behind the scenes that are remarkable. I can tell you from my own experience how giving like no other thing really deeply tests my faith in God. It's amazing how how giving really tests it. You know, I have a conservative financial mind. I, I look at the things that are coming up in our future. You've got two boys that are headed off to college and a third, and I figured out exactly what year that if all works out or all happens the way it looks like it will, that we'll have three in college at the exact same time. I look at older vehicles. I look at all these things, and I put all those numbers together, and you know what? They don't work. They don't work. <clears throat> no matter how much ramen noodles we eat, they don't work. And so when it comes to giving and I, and I, and I see what to, to give away, there's a part of my heart that just says, you know, I don't know if I can do this. I don't, and, and then when I do it and I see God work, it's like, oh, that's right. God owns everything and he's got my back and, and, and God loves to test us and then to show us the beauty of what it means for him to, to meet our needs. Giving like few other things in a person's spiritual life makes faith in God real. It's a tangible demonstration, an opportunity to put you in the ring to see God be true to his word. You know, when we approached this whole uh, season of fundraising for our new building, my wife and I committed to a dollar amount that we just thought was, frankly, a, a significant stretch for us. 
And uh, as I was working through this, this series, I realized that God had provided enough for us to be able to hit our financial target and do that early. And so this morning I wrote the last check to be able to put that in the offering. And it's been remarkable to see the ways in which God has just abundantly provided more than we could ever ask or think. And to be able to, to, to hit that goal that we thought was impossible and to see God is at work. And there's nothing more beautiful than to know that God is doing what God does best. And that is pour out grace on his people. So the reality is, friends, we need to talk about this issue of giving and money. So let's first take up the issue today of this matter of tithing. Our text this morning from Numbers 18 services a term that probably many of you associate with biblical giving, and that being the notion of tithing. And I want you to understand how this relates to us today. Numbers 18 is the part of a larger series of instructions given to the priests and the Levites about how they were to conduct themselves in the context of ministry. As a part of the Old Testament sacrificial system, there were 12 tribes, and 11 of them had parcels of land in the land of Israel that were given to them. And then, out of the abundance of what they grew on their land, they were to give tithes to the Lord. The Levites, however, did not have property. They served the people's spiritual needs. And so, therefore, part of what the people gave supported the Levites. And therefore, they received these tithes from the people. And so, Numbers 18 is about how they are to give based upon what they have been received, what they have received from the people of Israel. Look at verse 26 of Numbers 18. He says, Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites when you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance. Then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord. A tithe of the tithe, and your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were the grain offering of the, of the, of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress. So your gift, this tithe of the tithe, will be as if you had your own property and you were growing grain or you had grown grapes and produced wine from their, the winepress. And so this notion that the priests were to give based upon what they had been given is what Numbers 18 is all about. So what is a tithe? A tithe was the practice of giving 10% of one's income or one's increase as a financial offering to the Lord. The idea that out of the abundance of everything that you had been given, that one-tenth of that was dedicated specifically to the Lord. Now, interestingly, the concept of tithing was not unique to Israel. In fact, throughout many other nations and many other religions in the ancient Near East, tithing was a very common practice. Uh, For instance, the Babylonian culture practiced tithing. As well, the Temple of Athena in Athens uh, requested or even demanded of their people to tithe. The Romans, the Greeks, and the Chinese all practiced this concept of tithing. So it's not just germane to Israel or to biblical instruction, but rather tithing is a part of really the overall environment of the ancient Near East. Now, the very first evidence that we have of a tithe in the Bible comes from Genesis 14. And this is when Abraham has defeated the king of Sodom. And on his way back, he encounters a man named Melchizedek, who was the king and the priest of the Most High God in a region called Salem. And out of the abundance of what Abraham had gained from his victory over the king of Sodom, the text tells us that he gave a tithe, or he gave 10% to the king and the priest, this man named Melchizedek. If you were to look in Hebrews chapter 7, you would find that this moment of Abraham giving 
giving tithes to Melchizedek has enormous spiritual ramifications because um, Abraham is paying homage to this man who is both king and priest. And Melchizedek is, be, is a harbinger of another king and priest who will be seated in Jerusalem, that being Jesus. And for that matter, he is the priest of the Most High God in a region called Salem. And from this region, a city will be built whose name will be Jerusalem. And it is this model of paying homage to this priest and king from which we see this first notion of a tithe being given. However, Abraham didn't invent this concept of tithing. It was very much a part of the Babylonian culture from which he came from, and he saw this as a means of honoring this priest and king, like the Babylonian culture honored both their their government and their rulers and their religious leaders by virtue of this 10% gift. Then, fast forward, when the Israelites become a nation and they become organized, tithing was a vital part of their national identity. In Israel, the tithe, 10%, was both an obligation and it was an act of worship. Because there was no separation between the spiritual and the secular, because there was no separation between worship and their identity as a nation, therefore the tithe both supported the organization as a nation and was also an act of worship. And so what happens in Israel's economy is we have two words put together that we don't usually put together. And those two words would be taxes and worship. Now, I know most of you don't have a category for those two things in your brain to be that close together. No, 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 no. Taxes and worship, those are as far as the east is from the west. And true, they might be. But in Israel, they were not. There was no distinction in the the life of the people from their nation and their spiritual life. They were intertwined. And so the giving of this 10% tithe was seen as spiritual taxation. It was part of the way in which Israel maintained its identity. It was used to support the nation. And it was also worship at the same time. Let me show you this. Take your Bible, go over to Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30. You're going to need to use your Bibles at a couple points this morning in order to see what I'm telling you here. Leviticus 27 verses 30 to 33. In this passage we see that that God identifies the importance and the value of the tithe. And we see some important principles that come out of this text about what the tithe is all about. Again, Leviticus 27, verse 30. It says this, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. Note that. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. So in other words, if you're a herdsman, you have your sheep that are passing underneath, you're counting them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's the Lord's. Put it off to the side. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Put it off. That's the Lord's. And so there's this constant, out of all that you have, this designation of a particular portion of all that you had belong to the Lord. And then verse 33, one shall not differentiate between the good or the bad. In other words, they, they weren't allowed to stage their sheep so that the weak and ugly ones were the tenth one, okay? They don't line their sheep up like you line people up in basketball on the playground when you were in elementary school, all right? Meeny, miny, mo. I don't know how I came up with a better team because you lined everybody up. So that, that's not how it works. And also, you couldn't make a substitute. You couldn't pull in a bad sheep. Whoops, sub sheep, mulligan, put them over here. You couldn't do that. You weren't allowed to somehow switch out the sheep or the cattle. You had to be able to give even the very best. 
verse 33. And if he does a substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. In other words, if you try and do a substitute, now you have to give both. In other words, don't try and pull a fast one on God. So the tithe then was based on a few key principles, and here they are. The first is that everything belongs to the Lord. Fundamental to this idea of tithing is that God owns it all. It's all his anyways. Secondly, all that we have and ever hope to have is a gift from him. Realizing that the Israelites came into the land that was a gift from God, even the growing of their produce, the reproduction of their herds, were all part of what God did as creator. And so therefore, it's a recognition that everything I have and everything I ever hoped to have is all because of a gift from you. And finally, a tithe honors the relationship between creator and creature. Meaning that it acknowledges that God is creator and I am creature and everything that I have is dependent on him. And everything that I have really at the end of the day belongs to him. Now, you might think that you just had to offer in Israel a tithe once a year, but that wouldn't be an accurate assessment. Rather, there were three tithes that had to be offered, and one of them every three years. For instance, there was a regular tithe that had to be given, but there was another one that was connected to national festivals. For instance, when you'd go to Jerusalem to celebrate particular festivals, you had to bring a a 10% tithe. And then every three years, there was a benevolence tithe that was given to meet the needs of orphans, widows, and the poor. And so therefore, if you put it all together, and if you really wanted to be technical about the percentage that was given, if you take every three years, 10% is given, plus 10% at the front end of the year, plus 10% at festival time, the reality is the people of Israel were giving closer to about 23%. That really was what their tithe was all about. So, what conclusions can we draw then about tithing in the Old Testament? Let me give you four here quickly. First, it was this, that tithing was a common practice in the ancient Near East. Israel was not the only nation that practiced tithing. Even pagans practiced tithing. Secondly, tithing was rooted in God's ownership. God owns it all, and therefore tithing was simply a means of recognizing that. It was also in Israel uh, both an obligation and an act of worship. So in in God's economy, in the nation of Israel, there was an obligation to give, but it also was an act of worship. And then finally, we need to note that tithing went well beyond the traditional 10%. In fact, it was closer to the 23% mark that we mentioned a few moments ago. So tithing, therefore, was the fundamental way that the people of Israel expressed their understanding of God's role in their life, a way that they expressed gratitude for God for what he had done for them, and also the way in which they supported the nation financially. So that then raises another question, and that's this. Was tithing the only way that people gave? And what I want to show you next is that while tithing was a fundamental way of giving, it wasn't the foundational way of giving. While tithing was a basic way of giving, it wasn't the base of giving. So I'm going to make a distinction between something that's fundamental and basic, between something that is foundational and the base, and help you see that tithing certainly was important, but I think there's another kind of giving that's even more foundational, more at the base of what giving is, and I'm going to argue that that kind of giving is voluntary, free-willed giving. The first gifts that are given are found in Genesis chapter 4. It's the offering of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were the first sons of Adam and Eve, and they brought an offering to the Lord. Cain brought um, produce from the garden. Abel brought um, animal sacrifices. And the text tells us in Genesis chapter 4 that Abel's sacrifice was accepted, but Cain's was not. 
Some think it's because of the different kind of sacrifice. I don't think the issue was animal versus produce because both offerings in the Old Testament were acceptable. The issue, if you play out Genesis chapter 4, is the fact that Cain's heart was off. And that's why God and him have this conversation. If you will be accepted, won't you? Why is the countenance of your face fallen? You sin is crouching at your door. It's desirous to have you. The problem was that Cain apparently came with an unwilling, stingy heart, whereas Abel came with a free-flowing, loving heart. And the conclusion then is that the very base of what giving is, is this heart condition that is foundational to God-honoring giving. In other words, from Cain and Abel, we learn that the heart is very much important to God. God when one gives. And the heart, in fact, makes the gift acceptable or not to God. The second evidence of giving is found in Genesis chapter 8. This happens after Noah comes out of the ark, after God has delivered he and his family from the great flood. He comes out, he builds an altar, and according to Genesis 8.20, he takes every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. So once again, we don't see a tithe in Genesis chapter 8. Rather, we see this spontaneous, voluntary offering that comes from a heart of gratitude. Noah had been delivered from a great flood, and God didn't make Noah give this. Instead, Noah gave it out of the overflow of his experience of God's redemptive power. Noah couldn't help himself because of what God had done. There was a desire to give and to give from the heart. The third offering is made by Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. This third offering that we find, all now pre-tithe, before ever um, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, Abraham hears this promise from God, and the promise is, to your offspring I will give this land, and then the text tells us that he builds an altar. And so while it's not stated directly as to what exactly he gave, if you build an altar, you're doing so because you're going to give an offering. And here we see yet another example of of a model of a person who was blessed by God, who responded in gratitude to God, and gave a voluntary willing gift. And all three of these gifts predate the concept of the tithe. As well, if you take the tithe and we fast forward into the nation of Israel, tithing was not the only way that the people gave. Even after Israel was formed, people not only gave their tithe, but they also gave a voluntary offering above the tithe. A voluntary offering was often a part of a person's giving. So they had this debt, this obligation of tithe, but they also had this willing offering that they made on top of that. And then consider this. When funds were needed for the first worship center, the tabernacle, how was that funded? It was not funded by virtue of a tithe. Rather, instead of funding the tabernacle by virtue of tithes, it was funded by the willing heart of the people. In fact, so much so, they gave and gave and gave that Moses had to tell them to stop giving. Look at this, Genesis, or Exodus rather, 35. Look at Exodus 35 and verse 4. Here we see an example of this voluntary notion of giving. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is Exodus 35, 4, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. Verse 21. Notice again this theme of willing heart. And they came 
everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its services and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. Here it is again. Brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of of gold objects, and every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And, And by the way, Remember what they were before this moment? They were slaves. So where did they get all this goods? They got it when they went out of Egypt. God delivered them and the people of Israel gave them gifts. Get out of here. Here, take some gold with you. Don't come back. And so it's out of this bounty that God in his deliverance had given them that they then give freely for the construction of this tabernacle. And then fast forward into David's day. Look at 1 Chronicles 29. Show you this again. And again, we're just seeing over and over and over this biblical theology, this systematic theology of giving and, and how tithing connects into all of this. When, when they were constructing the tavern or the, the temple, David took an offering. And then when all the people contributed, he prayed over the offering. And this is what he said. And this, this passage in 1 Chronicles 29, 14 is so loaded with so many wonderful things. He says this, But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. Meaning, David's just amazed that they're taking God's stuff and they're giving it back to him. And David understands this beautiful reality that even what we're giving you, God belongs to you. It's sort of like, Dad, when your kids give you your tools back for Father's Day. Like, here's your hammer, Dad. It's a little rusty, but we found it. You know what I mean? So it was your hammer to begin with, but you still say thank you, even though it's your stuff. Why? Because it's not this stellar gift that they've given, thanks for the rusty hammer. Rather, it is the heart that said, hey, let's go find Dad's hammer out in the sandbox. So it is this this notion that all the stuff belongs to him in the first place. Verse 15, for we are strangers before you and sojourners as our fathers were all or our days on the earth are like a shadow there is no abiding O lord our god all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own verse 17 i know my god that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness in the uprightness of my heart i have freely offered all these things And now I have seen your people who are present here offer freely and joyously to you. So I'm trying to make the case here of the importance, the the, the foundation, the base of what free voluntary offering is all about. When I put all this together, here's what I see. First, voluntary giving, not tithing, is the base or the foundation of generosity. So if you want to get to the ground floor of what is the fundamental principle upon which giving is built, it's not a percentage. It's not tithing. Rather, it is of willing, voluntary giving. Secondly, voluntary giving was a response to the grace and the goodness of God. If you trace it out, whether it's in in Abraham's day, in Noah's day, in Moses' day, or in David's day, you'll see this constant theme of the grace and goodness of God. People receive God's grace, they see God's grace, and they want to give to God, even though it's all his stuff. They want to be able to show and demonstrate out of the gratitude of their heart for what God has done for them, then they give to God, even though he doesn't need their stuff. Third, tithing, while valuable and important, was a cultural and national addition that never replaced voluntary heart-based generosity. So you have this foundation of heart-based generosity, and then tithing is added in the Old Testament context of the nation of Israel, but it never replaced this, this voluntary giving notion. 
So, now some of you are wondering, so are we supposed to tithe or not? What, 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 what do you, what, what exactly do you mean? That's a great question, and let me attempt to answer that. Before I give you the full answer on that, I want to read you a quote by Augustine. And here's what he said. Tithes are required as a matter of debt. And he who has been unwilling to give them has been guilty of robbery. Whosoever, therefore, desires to secure a reward for himself, let him render tithes, and out of the nine parts, let him seek to give alms. In other words, you owe God the first 10%, and then if you're going to give anything else, give that out of the remaining nine parts. Or a contemporary author, Randy Elkhorn, says this, Free will offerings constitute true giving, because the tithe is a debt to be repaid, not a gift per se. Here's my question. How do those sound to you? Do you agree with that? That the tithe is a matter of a debt? See, because I don't. I think that those notions of tithing as a debt, that giving as a debt, are misguided. I think it's a common perspective that the tithe is a debt owed to God, and then real giving is somehow beyond that particular 10%. Elkhorn and great and a lot of others go to great lengths to try and explain how they think that giving, even though it's as a debt to God, can still be worship and voluntary. However, I think that presses it way too far. I, I see tithing as defined and practiced in the Old Testament as something that is not a model for giving today. And therefore, I think that tithing is the wrong way to approach New Testament giving. I say that for three reasons. The first is that voluntary, heartfelt giving predated tithing. Before there was ever tithing, there was this notion of heartfelt, voluntary free-willed sort of giving. And secondly, the historic and prophet, prophetic books don't advocate for a continuation of tithing. There's, 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 there's not a text that indicates that this is the way that things are still to be. And as well, the New Testament never suggests that tithing is the model of Jesus' disciples. Anything that you see on tithing would refer rather to what the Pharisees did. So, therefore, I think that tithing is the wrong approach when it comes to looking at New Testament giving. Now, some of you are really uncomfortable at this moment because you, you would, you'd think in the back of your mind, well, that means that people are going to give less than 10%. And what I'm arguing for is that a grace-based model would be the right motive for people to give, and the percentage should not be our main concern. You see, this is, this is often what happens in subtle forms of either legalism or uh, a fear, is that if you fear that people are going to give less, therefore you set a certain percentage and then try and hold them to that particular standard. That, that's, friends, how playing cards used to be a problem. Because people were afraid that if you played with cards, you'd get used to it, and then you start going gambling. So therefore, you drew the line back up far enough and said, cards, they're bad, they're bad. They're, they're, or you can take anything you want. How folks are so concerned about, about the overabundance of dating. So then we gotta do courtship, and then we call it biblical courtship. And yet, and yet there's these, whenever you call something biblical or real Christianity, that's when it gets into trouble. And often those things happen because of a fear. A fear of people won't give 10% unless we tell them they have to pay 10%, and that's a debt they owe to God. I would argue, I think that's a bad way to motivate folks. And as well, I think it creates a debtor ethic when it comes to the understanding of our relationship with God. The fact of the matter is he doesn't need the money in the first place. And to be motivated out of grace, I think, is far more rich. Those who advocate sometimes for this tithing model suggest that people like me are trying to find a way to give less than 10%. And to that I would just say, come on, really? 
That's really my motive, to try and give less than 10%. It really is to restore the heart of what New Testament giving is. And frankly, it's the same argument that was used against Paul when he talked about the beauty of God's grace. People said, if you save this, Paul, people are just going to go on sinning. And Paul says in Romans 6, what, shall we continue with sin that grace may abound? Whenever grace is brought forward, there's always the charge that it could go awry. And yet at the same time, that doesn't negate the value of grace. Here's the other issue. As I fear for some of us, who have so attached our giving standard at 10% that it makes you feel righteous when you do it, even though you're doing it out of rote habit and even self-righteousness. See, this is how something good can go really bad. For instance, you gave your 10%, and then when anything comes across your plate for you to give, you're like, no, 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 I gave my 10%, I'm done. And you look at it as not, what does God want you to use that money for? You view it now as I've given, and I don't need to give anymore. And it's my belief that this specific, required, obligated percentage takes away the heart of what giving was supposed to be. It's supposed to be this heartfelt wrestling, this joy of out of a love for you, I, I want to be able to give. It, it takes the joy out of giving if there is this regulated, required, obligated response. And so therefore, I would say, if you're a 10% giver and you've always been a 10% giver and you don't think about giving anymore, I would encourage you, think about it, give 9 or 11, but don't give 10 anymore. And for that matter... We need to be sure that the heart gets into our giving. Otherwise, it takes away the beauty of what it means to give a gift. There's an extended um, relative in uh, my family who's um, no longer alive. And whenever I would give this person a gift, my parents would require that I very quickly made a phone call. Or Whenever I received the gift, excuse me, when I received a gift from this person, I had to very quickly make a phone call and say thank you. The reason was that this particular person got very upset if we didn't receive a call from us saying thank you within a particular time window. And it used to drive me crazy that I wanted to say thank you, but I don't want to have to say thank you if I have to say thank you. Does that make sense? It, it's, it's really, it takes the, so whenever I would give a gift, I was like, here's my gift and yeah, I'll be calling you like in 24 hours. I mean, it just, it just took away the joy of that gift. Or, for instance, a wife who feels like she has to have a gift at every occasion. Ladies, this is why you have more kitchen appliances than you know what to do with. It's, it's because of the fact that there's this requirement, and guys don't know what to do, so that, well, you have to get a gift, so let's try the blender. There we go, and here it is. There's no thought. There's, sorry, I just ruined all your kitchen appliances for you, didn't I? What I'm trying to show you is the importance of engaging the heart in what it means to give. God loves a cheerful giver. Now next week I'll unpack this even more fully, but let me just give you some concluding thoughts because I don't want to leave you hanging as to, so what do we do with this? I don't want you leaving confused. Here's some things. First is this, that giving acknowledges God's ownership of everything, and so you should regularly give. I am not suggesting that you shouldn't give. On the contrary, I firmly believe that a failure to give, to have a stingy heart, reflects on your view of God. And those who love God's rule in their heart will have generous, giving hearts. You have freely received, Jesus said, so you freely give. So where do we start? We start from the fact that giving acknowledges God's ownership of everything. One of our elders has a check, and I saw one that he, that, um, that, that he had the other day. And right above where he signs his name, it says, God owns it all. I love that. 
that every time he signs his check, he has to see these words, God owns it all. And it's just a reminder, God owns everything. And so therefore, we ought to regularly give. Secondly, engaging the heart in giving is more important than the size of the gift. God loves a cheerful giver. Do you like getting a gift from someone who you know that the only reason they're giving it is because they have to? And do you think that God needs your gift in the first place? He doesn't want your gift. He wants your heart. And so it is really important to see that central to the beauty of giving is this heart wrestling that should accompany it. That you ought to be thinking regularly about, God, do you want me to give and how much do you want me to give? And rather than just simply assigning some percentage to it, to really wrestle, God, what do you want me to do? Third, there is a commendable value in priority and percentage giving. So this is where I think tithing is helpful as a, as a model, as a shadow for us to see what giving is. And so I would encourage you to consider making giving the first check that you write. I'd encourage you to live by this principle. Give, save, live. See, most of us live in the live and that's it, right? That's, that's just where we live. There's, there's no, there's, you're waiting for the other one. It's not coming. So, because I know where we live. We just live. That's all that it, there is. Instead of give, save, live, we just live. And that's why some of you are just head over heels in debt. You can hardly even think about being generous because you're so, you got so many things. You look around your house and the reality is the problem isn't the money. The problem is the affection of the heart. Listen to me. You will make more money someday and it will be harder to give, not easier. Money is not the issue. Because the larger the check, the harder it is to give. You think, wow, I could actually do something with that. A couple years ago, I could hardly even do anything with it. There's no problem to give it away. But when there's more money, it doesn't mean that it's easier to give. I want to encourage you to plan to give. So maybe a percentage giving is the way you need to go. To look at your family budget and say, let's make it our goal this year to get to 11%, 12%, 10%. Maybe it's 5%, but they have a plan. My goodness, you have a plan about your 401k. You have a plan about what your career is going to look like. You have a plan for your kids' education. Some of you have a plan for how your kids are going to make the soccer team in college to win a big scholarship. you got a plan, and you're working the plan. And yet some of us don't have a plan for how we're going to give. Fourth, giving a tithe does not satisfy our giving obligations. Although valuable and commendable, uh, giving 10% of your income doesn't mean that you've fulfilled the heart of giving. God doesn't need your money. And what I would encourage you to do, get back to the heart of what is it, why are you giving, and really make it a means of worship. And then here's the last one, and this is the most important. Friends, we need to see giving through the lens of the gospel. The greatest motivation for giving is the gospel. The gospel being that God is holy, we are sinners, and God rescued us from ourselves. That he, through the death of his son, paid the full price of our atonement so that we could receive the lavish gift of his grace, having been forgiven of all of our debts. We, of all people on the planet, ought to know the beauty of receiving great grace. And out of the overflow of that understanding, God should work in our hearts so that we release money because we know how generous God has been to us. So for some of you, the problem is not accounting. The problem isn't a budget. The problem isn't your debt. The problem really is that you don't understand and know the gospel. So when I talk about giving, it doesn't make any sense because why would you give if you don't know what it means to have richly received mercy? Listen to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich i mean if you get this then it takes your checkbook and it transforms it into just something for you but an opportunity to do gospel good 
about a month or so ago, we had a young lady who was hanging out at our house, and she was telling us a very difficult story of what was going on in her home and in her marriage, and just began recounting all the challenges. And I wanted to do something. I wanted to fix the, the, the situation that had caused her plight. I wanted to somehow help. And there's, there's nothing that I can do besides pray and give. And while we were sitting there talking, I, I felt just so strongly motivated that I want to do something to help. And so before she left, we got our checkbook, wrote her a check, and said, here, here's something that hopefully will help you. And, and what happens in that moment is that your checkbook now becomes the means of a conduit of God's grace. What was motivating me to do that was the fact that God had been so gracious to me, and I wanted to be part of what God is doing in this person's life. And while tithing is not required, it only makes sense that grace-loving, Jesus-centered, forgiveness received people would go well beyond the Old Testament standards of giving. That people who understand the fullness of Christ, the fullness of the cross, and the fullness of grace have hearts that are filled with generosity and want to just blow the water out of any concept of tithing and go far beyond that. But at the same time, I would tell you that your motivation for giving should not be obligation or habit. It instead should be love and gratitude because you love the cross, you love Christ, and you love to be a part of his work. And I think that is the best motivation for people giving. And so, Father, we pray that this morning you'd help us to get what it means to be a part of your economy and how we can give and be generous. Um, We thank you for the early Old Testament models that help us know many things about you and how you work. And we thank you even more for the model of the cross of Christ and what it means for us to see him become poor so that we could become rich. And Lord, we need just to say to you how sorry we are that often our hearts are so filled with covetousness. We live in a culture that just thinks about more stuff and more need and more want. And at times it's overwhelming and it's scary. And we just pray you'd release us to trust in you and to give and to be generous and to see you at work. And I pray that we will live out the gospel and see the beauty of the riches that we've received in Christ. And Lord, in a crazy way today, on a message on tithing, I pray that you would pierce the heart of a man or a woman, either in this service or in worship too, or who will hear this message online, that today you could use a message on tithing to awaken them to their need to receive Christ. Oh God, I pray that you would do that and use your word to motivate us to give like you have given to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, if you need someone to pray with, our prayer team are up here afterwards. They'd love to be able to pray with you. All right, they're here to bless you and minister to you. I love you, College Park. Have a great day. God bless you.